Hello all and welcome to another episode of A Portrait of Possibilities, where curators at the Art Gallery of Ontario interview experts to learn more about our recent acquisition, Portrait of a Lady Holding an Orange Blossom. Throughout the series, we'll talk to specialists on topics as diverse as race, gender, botany, fashion, and art conservation to better understand the world that produced our enigmatic portrait of a woman of color standing outside in lavish dress, offering the viewer more questions than answers. I'm Adam Levine, Assistant Curator of European Art. And I'm Monique Johnson, Interim Assistant Curator of European Art. Today we'll be looking more closely at the incredible costume and dress worn by the lady in this portrait. We'll be joined by two scholars of fashion who will shed light on what the sartorial clues can reveal about our subject's status, about the manufacture of and global trade in textiles in the 18th century, and more. And first, I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Ingrid Maida to this episode. Ingrid is an art historian, a dress detective, and a current research fellow at the Modern Literature and Culture Research Centre at Ryerson University in Toronto. I also understand, Ingrid, that you have a forthcoming book titled, appropriately, Reading Fashion and Art, which I personally look forward to reading. So on that note, dress obviously features so prominent in this portrait. We have the figure standing three-quarter length, presenting herself to us in this resplendent blue dress. And it's really one of the most, or one of the greatest iconographic clues that we have to work with. But in general, first, what do you think we stand to learn by, quote, reading fashion and art? Thank you so much, Monique, for inviting me to discuss this incredible painting. Fashion and figurative art are intimately connected since fashion is ever changing and only looks right at a given place and time. And although we cannot read a painting like a text, the dress worn in a portrait often embodies clues as to cultural beliefs and the sitter's identity, especially in terms of class, status, and gender. In this particular portrait, the dress also offers clues that may be helpful in dating the work. Absolutely, and we really look forward to getting to that. Um, but I know you also do uh, research for museums and for costume collections under the guise that I mentioned of the dress detective. So, <laughs> in under that guise as the dress detective. What first strikes you about this particular portrait? Well, as the dress detective, I have to say what makes this portrait rare and unusual is the fact that it depicts a woman of color dressed in an exquisite and expensive 18th century gown. While I was doing the research for reading fashion and art, I looked far and wide for artworks that reflected diversity of representation. And I really found it very difficult to find paintings from this time period that included women of color, unless they appeared in positions of servitude. When I first saw this work, I knew it was a rare and special painting and I was so pleased that the AGO acquired it. But sadly, that did not happen in time for me to include it in my book. Well, fortunately, we're, we have the opportunity to discuss it here now. 
And yes, we're so lucky to have it in our collection and to be able to share it with our public. Can you describe in a little more detail what the lady is wearing? This lady is wearing a pale blue silk gown with a fitted closed front bodice and a wide skirt supported by panniers or hoops. The low square neckline of her dress is filled in with a scarf known as a fichu. Her dress has elbow length sleeves trimmed with horizontal bands of ribbon and finished with detachable lace cuffs. She's also wearing a pretty decorative apron made of very fine silk gauze. Her unpowdered hair is topped with a small lacy white cap edged with silver thread and trimmed with blue ribbon. Thanks for that description. And based on some of those, some of that description, how can some of these details help us to date the painting? This is a question that we're all kind of eager to answer. In looking at a dress and a portrait, one always has to keep in mind that an artist might have taken liberties or that the sitter might be wearing a dress that was restyled or that she borrowed from the artist or perhaps someone else. With those two caveats, each element of her dress, the color, the textile, cut and style, and even the type of trim provide clues that can help date her ensemble based on what was in fashion at a particular time. For example, her dress skirt is not as wide as the fashions in Europe were in the 1750s. And the lower part of that skirt, even though we can't see it clearly, is not gathered or drawn up, suggesting that it's not a style of dress that was fashionable in the 1780s. And her elbow length sleeves are decorated in a style that can be seen in other portraits from the 1770s. In terms of the color of the dress, pastel blues, pinks, greens, and yellows were popular in the 1770s. Even her hair, which is unpowdered and topped with a relatively small cap, suggests the early 1770s. Of course, it's possible that the dress may have been worn after it was fashionable, but generally portrait sitters want to appear at their best especially since having a portrait made was such an expensive and costly proposition. I think we certainly see that here in the portrait in terms of the, the absolute confidence and grace with which she's presenting herself to us, to the viewer. So working with that assumption that the painting dates to the 1770s, what do you think the dress and jewelry that she's wearing might tell us, might reveal about her social status? Each part of this lady's dress ensemble are indicative of wealth and status because they would have been expensive to acquire. Not only is her silk dress very fine, but its silver edge trimmings and the lace cuffs would have been very costly. Her fichu and apron are her sumptuous translucent silk gauze. She also wears quite a bit of jewelry, a double strand pearl choker necklace pearl bracelets on each wrist and large gemstone earrings. Each element of her ensemble would have been expensive and thus act as clues to her social standing. 
Yeah, I remember you showed us um, a couple of weeks ago when we were in the AGO a comparable image of a woman dressed in the in the similar double-stranded pearls. So uh, around the 1770s, so we can see that she's definitely fashionable then by 1770s standards. Uh, so I know that. Sorry, go ahead. I was going to add that pearls in particular were often considered signs of fidelity, which may suggest that they were associated with bridal wear. Fidelity, and I think also I've heard purity. They're this very kind of pure material um, gifted to us by nature. So yeah, it's interesting to read into these kind of symbolic clues potentially in the dress and, and jewelry itself. So I know that you were able to see this work in person, fortunately uh, for you, uh, before the AGO closed its doors in response to this health crisis. Is there anything in particular that stood out to you when you were actually face to face with the portrait? Well, again, I have to emphasize how rare and special this painting is in terms of depicting a woman of color. But what stood out for me when I was in front of the work in person at the AGO, again, were the elegant details of her dress ensemble, especially the really fine quality of the textile and its trims, which are not necessarily visible in a, a photograph of the work. And it's those small details that reveal clues as to this lady's identity and are also helpful in dating the work. Yeah, these, these little details definitely do add up. So we've arrived really at a probable decade for the work based on what you've helped us look at in terms of the style, in terms of the color, this pale blue, in terms of the construction of the dress. And we've also learned more about the social status of the figure. So thank you so much, Ingrid, for taking us through some of these costume clues as the dress detective and really for helping us read fashion and art. Thank you so much, Monique. Uh, every dress tells a story. Absolutely. Now I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Alexandra Palmer to our dress discussion. Dr. Palmer is the Nora Yvonne Senior Curator, Global Fashion and Textiles at the Royal Ontario Museum an Associate Professor of Art History at the University of Toronto, and very excitingly, the recent recipient of the Costume Society of America's prestigious Milia Davenport Publication Award for 2020 for her book, Christian Dior, History and Modernity, 1947 to 1957. Congratulations, Alexandra. And what's more, I understand it's the second time that you've received that award. So double kudos to you. And thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much, Monique. And you're vel welcome. This is a wonderful picture. Yeah, we look forward to discussing. So we discussed with uh, Dr. Ingrid Maida um, more details in terms of what the lady in the portrait is wearing. And we arrived at a decade, which is exciting, around <clears throat> the 1770s. Uh, so you can let us know what you think about kind of arriving at that moment, given the costume clues in the portrait. But 
thinking, if you agree that we're in approximately that decade, could you let us know what you think as a costume scholar, um, what the, the dress and jewelry then can tell us about our sitter's social <clears throat> status in this particular historical moment? Well, uh, this is a, a lovely portrait and um, unusual because of woman of color. And I would like to say young woman um, or young girl, perhaps, which is where I seem to be going with uh, the help of colleagues in, in England. Um, and uh, it's very light. And really the word enlightenment is what comes to mind with those shiny silks, the lightness of the textiles. Um, the history of 18th century fashion is really one of silk, um, silk design. That's where the money was in the costume. That's where what you paid for. There were not uh, designer labels. You weren't wearing swag in that way. Your swag <laughs> was readable by the textile you were wearing very, very, very clearly. People understood that. And what happens at this point in the, the last quarter, really, of the uh, 18th century is the uh, moving away from patterned silks, which was the backbone of the French silk industry, as well as to a large degree, the English industry in um, Spain and other places were making it as well, of course. But um, and pattern drawers that made those designs. And those designs are very clearly readable as fashionable of that moment, of that season. It's how we get this idea of seasonal style that we're very mm -hmm. embedded with in the fashion system today. Mm -hmm. um, and that was in the silk design. Uh, and that sort of goes out the window with the end of the 18th century and the moving towards classicism and um, great interest in sort of swaths of drapery. If you look at Joshua Reynolds' portraits, it's like fabulous drapery that's shiny and light mm. and lustrous. Um, and silk has this luster, which is very clearly rendered in this portrait. Um, and that's very important. So it's that um, reflection of light that you see in her, uh, also the gauze, silk gauze, which is very expensive very hard to make, a very fine, um, soft uh, textile that's very, very delicate. If it, you know, it snags, it breaks, you're weaving it by hand on machines. You need very fine space. It's really hard. And um, of course, her shiny jewelry, her pearls, which are very lustrous and her lovely earrings. So the whole thing and this sort of lightness of dress and the translucency of it, as well as almost her skin, um, really, I think, you know, tells you about this move towards enlightenment thinking and, and modernity. And of course, being a woman of color, there you, you know, kind of nailed it. <laughs> um, uh, because it's unusual. It's not, um, there's way fewer portraits of people in fashionable Western style dress. Mm -hmm. um, so it's interesting that you're pointing <laughs> to the luster, the light associated with the enlightenment, and we can see the kind of delicacy of her touch being enacted in, in various moments where she's holding up the, her apron, for example, as mm -hmm. well. But you're also speaking to a kind of restraint, uh, especially in terms of the, it's not a, it's not a pattern silk, 
it is this plain silk, as you've mentioned. Well, the plain is, is what's fashionable. Mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. She's a woman of fashion. She's absolutely up to date, except perhaps the lace cuffs under her sleeve um, that hang down are a little bit old, older style. Mm. Um, and uh, she's very modest. Mm -hmm. She's very fashionable. She's, you know, the, the orange blossom <clears throat> begs inquiry and, and questions of what that's about, because obviously it's very deliberate. Mm -hmm. um, we will <laughs> explore that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, those earrings, both of which are clearly shown that frame, yes. frame her face. And those, um, you know, Marcia Poynton, the art historian, talks about um, jewelry and brilliance and mm -hmm. shininess and the importance of different minerals and stuff like that in, in painting. And these are um, very fashionable earrings from the 18th century, the sort of diamonds, the way you cut diamonds, the um, moving a black stone into a shiny refractive stone and the way you could cut it um, became very skilled very popular, very fashionable. And um, as she points out the importance, the social and economic and also financial importance of diamonds began to outweigh that of pearls. But mm. she's, you know, she's got both. Um, she's covering all bases. <laughs> yeah, and maybe those are a new gift. Maybe those are a betrothal gift or um, making this up. We have no mm -hmm. evidence, but I, it, they are significant in the painting. Absolutely. I actually had a quote from Marsha Poynton about pearls. Nice. She calls them the purest of jewels, nature's gift. Um, and we can see that here, I think, mm -hmm. potentially, potentially a kind of synonymous symbolism with the orange blossom, but. Well, and her. And her, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. yes. She's embodying all of these, all of these elements in detail. Yeah, no, that's very nice of me. So we know that she's wearing um, silk and lace in this portrait. I was wondering if you could tell us and, a little and bit. The, and the delicate silk gauze, which is really important. The silk gauze as well. Yeah, which we but, don't understand. It just looks like netting or something to us. But this, you know, reading in the 18th century, that was a really expensive, beautiful textile that only a few places made it. And it was, it was really special. The more delicate things are, the more fragile they are in terms of production and in terms of wearing, don't want to snag it, mm -hmm. in terms of laundering and looking after and all these things that go with um, being able to present yourself in a way that's uh, chic and fashionable and um, you know, clearly shows that you're, you're someone who's, who matters. Yes, I think. We, we feel that in, as I said, in her embodiment of these, of these various elements. Mm -hmm. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about the production and trade in these textiles at this moment in the late uh, uh, 18th century. Um, well, silk has a very long history, of course, and it, it came to, uh, from China, um, made by silkworms, in fact, uh, Dr. Jaeger in the 19th century thought it was vile because it was the excrescence of worms. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, it, what's, what's beautiful about it is this luster and it can be spun into various ways. Um, <clears throat> and usually the warp thread, which is the, the thread that holds the tension on the loom that goes up and down, 
the weapon, the one that goes across. So the warp thread is usually stronger because it's under so much tension. So you need two different kinds of thread. So someone needs to bring the thread from China. Probably they also made it in, um, uh, or bring the silk, which can then be spun into thread, it needs to be dyed. Um, then it needs to be woven on a loom. Someone needs to decide what the pattern's going to be, what the color is going to be, all in advance because what you're going towards is a textile that you're going to sell and make money on mm -hmm. and someone's going to want it. So you have to uh, predetermine what those tastes are, what those colors are, what's going to entice someone with the latest color or the latest pattern to want to wear that um, and purchase your textile. And then, um, uh, and then you have to sell your product. And these products went all over the place. They were huge, you know, trade shipping. The silk usually came from the East India companies, the Dutch, the French, the English. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a lot of money and a lot of people tied up in getting, you know, the raw goods to the final product and in this case on on someone's back um, that we tend to forget about we tend to think oh you just get the fabric and you make it but it's there's a you know maybe a year or two years before that um, for things to travel and to get turned into the next level where it's going to become not, something else <laughs> not quite fast fashion at this point <laughs> not yet but <laughs> But they were definitely working towards that because yeah. speed and change and this, uh, you know, her, her plain textile is the latest style and is the latest fashion and that gauze is the latest fashion and her, um, the way her sleeve is the um, pleated above her elbow, that's a newer fashion. Mm. Um, and uh, her, her modest fichu, the scarf that she tucks inside, <clears throat> Which, which might be very fine linen. Um, so, and then there's the, the clothes she's wearing underneath, of course, too, which have to be <laughs> produced, which is probably linen, which is very tough and comes from Europe and Northern Europe. And so, yeah, you've got this, you know, world trade goods or. Yeah, absolutely global trade happening. Absolutely. Not to mention, of course, the pearls and the diamonds and, and all exactly. those things. And then someone still has to design them and put them together. And the, the double, uh, the paired bracelets, extremely fashionable. You see it on lots of portraits. As you do those kind of um, set and cut diamonds. I was wondering if you could speculate about where such a dress might have been made possibly or worn and how far it might have traveled you've already kind of alluded to the fact that this could be kind of could appear kind of globally at this moment yes well she's i mean she's wearing a fashionable style um what's what's noticeable is her bodice that doesn't have a front opening which is what you find mm -hmm. in women's dresses um and it was and it's also obviously that material you can see it in the way that the materials almost kind of is stretched towards the back taut mm -hmm. overstays so she's wearing belinge probably she's wearing very um carefully made for her mm -hmm. um pair of stays which is what they call the corset in the 18th century that would lace at the back and that's a shaped tailored garment um made by man probably or at least the 
pattern and the way it's fitted towards her is done like that. And then it looks like the um, textile is very smoothly fitted over that and kind of made to be um, this kind of hard, you know, armorial body there in the torso. Um, <clears throat> and it has to be done at the center back, which means that someone has mm -hmm. to help her. You can't possibly get into that by yourself. You have to be assisted. Um, and if you're buttoning and you're not buttoning, but if you're um, lacing or pinning or dressing in the front, you can do that yourself. So, um, and it was children and there's several portraits. Um, um, I sent this picture to my colleague in England um, at the School of Historical Dress, which is a wonderful place um, where they uh, zero down into uh, patterns and how things are really made and they're um, really doing amazing work. So um, uh, Jenny told me that her colleague Claire um, Thornton, who works there, had taken a pattern from a dress in The Hague that does um, a child's dress, mm -hmm. that does do in the back and is... Uh, laces in the back like that and um, has a very similar shape to the front with that sort of almost spoon shape over the mm. um, tummy um, and I've never seen a dress like that a child's dress because um, they're, they're very they're they just don't survive things get used and, and recycled um, and I think that one's actually from a, an earlier textile too so um, Possibly she's, um, you know, a, a young woman um, who's mm -hmm. about to get married and maybe have this sort of transition of style. So maybe that's what's happening with her bodice, which is unusual. And you don't see any, um, you don't see any seams painted. And mm -hmm. the painter so clearly um, could paint a seam if he wanted to. Right. Um, uh, and and this uh, dress that um, Claire had looked at in England, it, it wraps around like that. So there's just a, the seams are in the very back. So you, they wouldn't mm. be visible if indeed that's what it is, which I, I think it's very possible. It's interesting. Yeah, that's intriguing. So that would point to um, youth. And are you suggesting that once the, the rite of marriage happens, the dress the um it would be done up at the front i think so i mean if you look at yeah i mean it, this is such a, a sort of transitional moment like there's a lot more fashions at this time that are coming into the fore in the 18th century and you're you know where you're going is the turn of the century and that um mm -hmm. you know the, the so-called neoclassical and the little white dress and all that stuff um so uh yeah, women, I mean, you see these sort of um, more theatrical portraits with people sort of swathed in things, but these dresses don't really survive like that. So it's very hard to know how much of that is fanciful. Mm -hmm. And because they're plain silks and cousin, particularly like I was looking at Reynolds, like, you know, it's just masses of fabulous drapery and like that's all yard goods that you can endlessly redo lots of things with. And, and textiles were an economy, so they were reused and recycled. There's absolutely normal to do that. You'd be foolish. And they were listed in inventories and stuff like that. That's how we know a lot of them because they had such high economic value. But these plain textiles, mm -hmm. you know, could go on and on in various different ways. You know, they could become a pair of shoes even, you know. Right. <clears throat>
So that kind of leads into my final question, um, which is when we're studying costumes and historical portraits, some scholars have suggested that elements might be imaginary on the part of the artist. Um, I know that has been studied particularly in the context of colonial portraiture, rather than representing the actual dress worn by the subject. Um, as someone who works with the objects themselves, I was wondering to what extent you think this might apply in this case. And I suppose your correspondence with your colleagues has kind of revealed that there are such dresses, particularly with the unusual um, bodice uh, at the front? Well, I think, I mean, it's the, you know, this sort of artistic license is perhaps uh, more prevalent as you move through time in the history of art into the 19th century, particularly like anyone who's having a portrait taken of them um, is investing in that and what they choose to wear is is not a mistake it's very very carefully worked out and whether that's you know as someone a you know classical figure or whatever um, and the fashionability of the dress was extremely important because that's and it captured that moment of course portraits are repainted sometimes people you know are mm -hmm. aged or or, or youthed um, and sometimes textiles and those those bits of dress are changed to maintain the portrait as a fashionable thing so it doesn't look old-fashioned so there's you know lots of stuff going on um and i think it depends on what that portrait is so something like this i think it's it's obviously commissioned to depict a moment of a particular person it's not a fanciful mm -hmm. um you know mythological scene or something like it's very it's very mm -hmm. deliberate um and the text you know the the gauze and everything is rendered very carefully very clearly you see that mm -hmm. um the you know the the artist would i think probably show scenes and stuff like that if if that was important if that said something and they do tell you about cut and cut is fashion and cut is timely well, thank you so much for all of these insights yeah, into this work. We look forward to, as you said, kind of piecing together what we can with the material evidence we have in the image um, and turning to uh, the orange blossom next to studies of race and representation when Adam speaks to Dr. Charmaine Nelson um, and to putting our mind as well to that fascinating obelisk figure or element right. in the background as well. <laughs> yeah, well, I definitely look forward to hearing from everyone else. And thank you again for sharing all of your incredible knowledge about the trims and textiles, particularly. You're very welcome.